0: Uh, open our time together with prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity once again to open your word and to think about what it teaches us. We pray that you would bless us with wisdom and insight into your word by your spirit, that you would help to keep us uh, from error and lead us on the, the path that's true by your spirit. So help us in these things, we pray, for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're conti- we're continuing to consider the first uh, head of doctrine from uh, the Canons of Dort. Uh, we've come to uh, talking about the difficult decree of reprobation. Um, nothing says Christmas like talking about the decree of reprobation, um, but this is where we've come in our in our lesson. Um, and we talked last time we met about reprobation, and then we haven't really talked about it since. Um, and so move we 're going to move on to the part of the of the canons that are going to explain reprobation and help us to think about it um, more clearly and think about some implications of it. remember that we 've said that the canons tend to work this way; they tend to explain have one article that explains a doctrine and then comes back to explain about that doctrine to give further insight into it to respond pastorally to Problems that may come up after you bring up such a doctrine. So we, we talked about how Calvin calls it the awful decree, not because God is doing something wrong, but it's awful in that what, what God decrees to do, which is to leave people in, in the sin they've plunged themselves into and to finally condemn them. And it's certainly something that scripture teaches that we saw last time. It's not something that's necessarily pleasant to think about, but it is a reality of what our God does. um, And it's just what he does and perfect. And so article 16 of the first head of doctrine then. So if you're using the hymnal, you'll find that on page 900 um, in the back of the hymnal. Um, I didn't look up the other page numbers for you, but it's 900 in the back of the hymnal. Um, And it talks about, now having talked about reprobation and thinking about that awful degree, um, what more do we need to say about it? Um, And we we need to think about how ought we to respond as Christians to that teaching. Um, Particularly if you have a tender conscience where you hear that and you worry and you think to yourself, what if I'm among the reprobate? Um, and and that that does happen. You have people who hear about election and reprobation, and then they begin to become consumed with worry. What happens if I'm not elect? What if I'm reprobate? Then there's nothing I can do to help myself, and you begin to go down that line of thinking, and so pastorally, the Canons of Dort don't want people to do that. Uh, They don't want people to go that way, so uh, Article 16 talks about responses to the teaching of reprobation, Um, and we read in Article 16, Those who do not yet actively experience within themselves a living faith in Christ, or an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, a zeal for childlike obedience, and a glorying in God through Christ, but who nevertheless use the means by which God has promised to work these things in us, such people ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to count themselves among the reprobate. Rather, they ought to continue diligently in the use of means to desire fervently a time of more abundant grace and to wait for it in reverence and humility. On the other hand, those who seriously desire to turn to God, to be pleasing to him alone and to be delivered from the body of death, but are not yet able to make such progress along the way of godliness and faith as they would like, Such people ought much less to stand in fear of the teaching concerning reprobation since our merciful God has promised that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick and that he will not break a bruised reed. However, those who have forgotten God and their savior, Jesus Christ, and have abandoned themselves wholly to the cares of the world and to the pleasures of the flesh. Some people have every reason to stand in fear of this teaching as long as they do not seriously turn to God. Um, Now, this is really responding to three different groups of people, right? There are three ways to respond to this teaching. Um, And, you know, my, my dad has expressed difficulty. He's been at a Ligonier conference and you'll have question and answer session and someone will ask the question, you know, I'm worried that I might not be saved. What would you say to me? And almost universally, before giving any advice, the panelists will say, Well, I would need to know you to know what exactly you need to hear. Right? Because someone who is living in open rebellion against God, you can't just say to them, Oh, you're fine, don't worry. Like, right? You need to say to them, Repent and turn to God. Someone who has repented and turned to God and who's Bur- burdened by their sin, but is, de- is earnestly putting their faith and trust, earnestly desiring to serve him, you would want to encourage that person. And so that's why they say, well, I would, I would kind of need to know the person before I know what exactly needs to be said to them. Uh, at the same time, you know, usually someone who's earnestly worrying about these things and desiring um, to be right with the Lord, that sh- shows a certain amount of activity in that person's heart by the Spirit wanting them to be Right with God so that 's usually a kind of encouraging thing, and so that 's what the canons are doing they 're saying pastorally, it depends on what kind of person you are um, if you 're someone who has heard the gospel and is struggling to come to faith who 's someone who 's still thinking through that, maybe you 've had you know that that experience you 're sharing the gospel with someone, and they they begin to be asking those questions that that people coming to Christ begin to ask. Um, they, they begin to start to wrestle with their sin. They begin to start to feel like pilgrim feels, your Christian feels in pilgrim's progress. They start to feel that, the burden that they're carrying. Right? And so the canons are saying, what do you do with someone who maybe is not believing yet, but they're starting to think about those things? Well, the, the canons say, someone who's like that, who's not sure yet that they have um, the true faith, is not to despair, you're not to immediately conclude that you're among the lost or that you're among the reprobate. Um, that's the first thing is being said. If you're not sure that you have true faith, um, if you're wrestling in those areas, right, people who do not yet actively experiencing within themselves a living faith in Christ or an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, a zeal for childlike obedience, glorying in God through Christ. If you're not sure for some reason, you don't need to automatically despair that you're reprobate. It just may mean you have to grow in these areas, right? Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, right? That that person should not go around thinking that they're reprobate. The person that needs to grow in these areas. And so the cans first say, just because you're experiencing a lack of these things, doesn't necessarily mean you're reprobate. Now, why are these things particular? particularly being highlighted? Well, because when we talked about the doctrine of election, we said, these are fruits that flow from election. And so even though you don't know what you're, you can't just say you're elect from God's decree, you're judging by the fruits that flow from them. And pastorally, they're saying, what if someone listened to that list of fruits and said, I'm not sure that's me. Does that mean I'm not elect? And does that mean therefore I'm reprobate? And the canons are trying pastorally to say to that person, don't start thinking that way. That's not the right way to think about these things. Um, So that's the first group of people are talking to, people who are for some reason unsure. Okay? Um, some reason unsure. We're not to despair that we're reprobate. Okay? That there's no hope for someone who's unsure. Okay, that's that's the first thing. Um, What about someone who's, let's just say, Unhappy. Unhappy with how far they've come in the Christian life. Right? Who wishes that they had more zeal for the Lord. Um, who, who really is a true believer. Um, who's not necessarily wrestling with, do I have a true and living faith? But they're saying, you know, if, I'm, if I was truly a Christian, wouldn't I have made more progress than I've made at this point in my life? Sure, no one here feels that way. But there are people from time to time feel like I could be a better Christian. Um, and and what, what about people who are like that? Um, well, those who seriously desire to turn to God um, but are not able to make such progress along the way of godliness and faith as they would like, such people much ought much less to stand in fear. Of the teaching concerning reprobation, since our merciful God has promised that He will not snuff out a smoldering wick and that He will not break a bruised reed. Um, That is a precious passage for God's people to remember. Um, I remember reading a, a pastor once who said, who was talking to a guy who was just, you know, shouldn't I have made more progress and shouldn't I have made more, you know, more effort in the Christian life? Should my faith be stronger? All these things. And he said, as he's talking to the guy, he said, you know, your problem is, for you, Jesus is a drill instructor. You know, for for you, you have a vision of Jesus who comes along as a drill instructor, um, who is constantly looking at everything you've done wrong. Right? If everything's not polished correctly, everything's not folded co- correctly, everything's not squared away correctly, is going to go make you clean the bathroom with a toothbrush, right? That that's the kind of God that Jesus is, that he comes with white gloves on, you know, looking, looking in the corners of your house, looking for dust and saying, you know, what is this I see here? You know, and he was saying, Jesus is not a drill instructor. That's not how the scriptures present him to us, right? Jesus says, if you're weary and heavy laden, you can come to me, and find rest for your soul because I'm gentle and lowly in spirit. Jesus said, I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about when he said, a bruised reed he doesn't break and a smoldering wick he doesn't put out. Right? He doesn't come to break you off if you're bruised. He doesn't come to blow you out if you're smoldering. Um, that's, that's the kind of God we have. Um, and that's reminding us of both of the prophecy that Isaiah made in Isaiah 42 and the fulfillment of, of that prophecy in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read that prophecy in Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 3. Behold my servant upon whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Um, In in Matthew 12, we read that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Um, It's interesting how, how... Matthew both relates that prophecy and recasts it as, as showing that that promise of bringing justice is actually a promise of hope, right? Because that if you're struggling, it might not be a great comfort to you that he's coming for justice because um, you might be saying to yourself, I don't want justice, I want mercy. Um, and, and Matthew says that's what, Ma- that's what Isaiah is talking about. Um, after Jesus you know, appears and he reads, it, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Um, and he, he recounts that, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. A reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Um, he's the one who comes to bring hope for God's people. And so rightly, the the. The canons say, look, if you're you're unhappy with the way things are going, um, don't be discouraged. Be encouraged, right? I don't know if these numbers are helpful, but if you start with a one, you have to continue. Um, If you're unhappy, you should be encouraged that God is not a God who comes to break you off. He's a God that comes, and if you ask for more grace, he gives it. And and so pastorally, those people who are unhappy with their progress shouldn't despair. Um, And so then, what's the final group of the people? We could say they're they're the people who are uninterested. And so, if you're uninterested in the things of the Lord, where where ought you to be? Considering the doctrine of reprobation, you ought to be afraid. Right? Do you see how this makes sense at the end? However, those who have forgotten God and their Savior Jesus Christ and have abandoned themselves wholly to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh, such people have every reason to stand in fear of this teaching as long as they do not seriously turn to God. Um, That's why they should be afraid, but they shouldn't be hopeless. Right? Anyone who's, who's actively walking away from Jesus should be afraid. That's the point. Um, we should be afraid if we're abandoning Christ. If he's the only name given among men by which we must be saved, then to walk away from him is to walk away from any hope. Um, and people who are like that should be afraid so long as they don't turn back to him. Notice that. That doesn't mean anybody should consider themselves as being hopeless, but they have every reason to stand in fear of this teaching so long as they do not seriously turn to God. Okay, so pastorally, you can see how this is very well done, right? There are people who don't have, they're, they're unsure. And so what is the remedy? Well, don't despair that you're reprobate, but keep making use of the means that God has given you, right? Keep going to hear the gospel preached to you. Keep going to hear the good news that Christ died for sinners. Keep coming and confessing your sins to the Lord and hear his assurance that you'll be forgiven for the sake of what Jesus has done. Not on any basis of what you've done, but just on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Come and continue to hear Christ crucified. If you profess faith in Christ, come continue to come to the table. Continue to participate in that spiritual food that spiritual feast that He's prepared for your soul to confirm those things that He's spoken. Right? Continue to make use of the means that God has given you. Continue to pray. Continue to read His Word. Those aren't means of grace in the same way that the preaching and the sacraments are, but they are means of encouragement, means of discipleship, that we can continue to hear God speak to us, that we can speak to Him. Um, one of the glorious things about Prayer is that you can go to God and be honest in your prayer, right? If you're unsure about your faith, if you're unsure about your life, um, you can go to God and say, I'm worried, right? The, the best thing that man did was say to, say to Jesus, I, I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. That's sometimes the best thing you can say to the Lord if you're struggling. You can, you can be honest with him, first because he already knows, Right? Sometimes, you, you know, you, you try to put on your best clothes and put your best face forward and, you know, come to God and think I have to say, you know, God, I'm just so happy to be here and everything's just going so well. Um, he knows that's not true. <laughs> like, if that's not your case, he knows it's already not true. And the good news is you can go with him and he will deal with you like a kind father. He will deal with you like a kind father who is not going to berate you for coming in, being unsure. Um, but is going to deal with you faithfully and gently like a father, like a friend. We can come to God with our own, with our uncertainty um, and continue to make use of the things he's given to help us in these things. So we continue to make use of the means that he's given us. That's what someone who's unsure should do. Um, and someone who's unhappy should do that too, continue to be encouraged by the means that God has given us. Um, that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a good thing. And the blessing is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Right, And so it's a good thing if we have a kind of godly discontent, we should be encouraged. God's not going to break us up. He's going to bring that that desire to fulfillment. Um, And so we're saying none of this teaching about reprobation should immediately make you run out the door and say, I'm reprobate, there's no hope. Um, but we were saying, yeah, there, there are different kinds of people in the world. Um, and they need the right kind of pastoral counsel. Um, and so we need to think about which applies to us and not misapply this doctrine on reprobation. Um, and Yeah, go ahead. So last week you said there's uh, some sins that we never outgrow, that we might not outgrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are there sin, the question is Are there sins that we just don't outgrow, or we might have to wrestle with our whole lives? You know, I think that's true. I mean, I think there are people who are wrestling against sin and are struggling against sin, and show every evidence that they hate sin and they hate the sin that lives in their life, but they can't seem to root it out entirely. Right. And then what I'm saying though, as a correlation or, or lead into that, you'll always be in some sort of state of unhappiness. Right. Feeling un- and right. Unsure. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, there, there's always going to be something. I mean, we're, we're in a dangerous place if we ever get to the point of saying, like, I'm finished. Right, I'm done. I'm sanctified. Um, I'm like Jesus now. <laughs> that, that would be worse, really. There's going to be always a godly discontent. So I think there are people who are always going to be living in some kind of un, discontentedness. Um, and probably the more we grow in holiness, the more we'll see clearly things we've lived with for a while that we didn't even realize how bad that was and that that needed to be gotten out of our lives as well. That, you know, sometimes it is when you try to work on one thing in your life, you find that there are two or three things that are behind that or that go along with that. Um, And so, you know, I remember Dr. Sproul saying once, part part of the reason he thought that maybe we have progressive sanctification is that if God just came and revealed to us exactly how sinful we are in all one big dump, we'd be so discouraged that we'd never be able to make any progress in holiness. That maybe he, he portions it out a little bit at a time when you can handle it to realize how unholy you are so that you can deal with these things. So yeah, I think there always is going to be a certain amount of unhappiness um, and a certain amount of two steps forward, one step back in the Christian life. Like I'm making a little progress, but now I seem to be walking back on that one. Um, and things that we'll, we'll have to wrestle with. There, I think there are definitely sins that some of us are more prone to that others of us don't struggle with. Um, and when someone's dealing with a sin you don't struggle with, it's easy to be hard with them because you don't understand what it is to struggle with that. But what you have to do instead is think, what's the th- sin that I continue to struggle with? That's what I'm dealing with, and that's what's like what they're dealing with. Um, that thing that I can't quite seem to root out of my life. Um, and even, even in sanctification, you realize, you know, if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, you need to stop doing it. But you might still think about it even though you don't do it. Well, that's a different kind of sin that you still need to grapple with. Um, so there's always going to be room for improvement. There's always going to be, yeah, a source of unhappiness, whether it's a, a besetting sin that you seem to be really struggling with and having trouble getting past, um, or just different things that at different points in life are more difficult than others. Yeah, there's always going to be a, a potential for us to be unhappy, and we shouldn't immediately start thinking, I'm, I'm reprobate. That's, that's what this article is saying. That, that should not be the first place our minds go. Is is to be looking, you know, a, a reprobation is the hobgoblin that li- that hides behind every corner. Um that that's not the way we should think in the Christian life. We should think different directions. Right. Did that get at your question? Okay. But then it kind of question came in my mind which is if we're not always in a perpetual state of unhappiness, are we looking to root out these sins in our lives Right. See now you're thinking like a Calvinist. When something goes good, you go yes. Oh no! Like <laughs> I'm enjoying something. Something's got to be wrong. Um, no. See what what I think we have to recognize is in the Christian life there are going to be joys and joys are not meaning you know you have to get back to work slave like that shouldn't be our you know immediate like thought. Um, but what we should do is in the joy of something if we really realize like hey. I've been having a real problem with anger and that guy just cut me off and I didn't think anything, I didn't do anything. Like I just, I drove down the road. Like that's an evidence of God's grace to me. Then you'd be thankful, right? The prayer isn't just help me through this, but it's also thank you for doing that. And so, it, you know, it's kind of like what, what, the, what the catechism tells us to do about, you know, the sovereignty of God, that when things go well, be joyful, be grateful, be glad to God that things are prospering. When things go poorly, um, then be patient, because God is working somehow through them, and for the future have good hope. So, yeah, just because things are going well, you you can rejoice in the work that God is doing. Um, but I think we all, we always have to say, but you know, but for God's grace, I wouldn't be what I am now. Um, so yeah, we don't want to lose sight of the Lord in those things, but we shouldn't. You know, we don't want to be so Calvinistic that we can never enjoy a moment. Um, you know, that's so that my dad's said so that's the kind of way people used to think about the Puritans. You know, they just walked around thinking somewhere somebody's having a good time, um, and we got to put a stop to it. Um, you know, that, that's not that's not how we should be as Christians. God wants us to enjoy the good things of life, and when things are going well, we should rejoice that they're going well. But if we have some kind of if we if we prevail over sins in some ways in our lives, we shouldn't ever say, "Wow, look what I've done by my own strength." Um, you know, there, there's a psalm for that too, where David says you know, I feel like with the Lord I can leap over a mountain and then all of a sudden God, you know, withdraws his hand a little bit and it's just like the cloud washes over him and he's back in darkness again. Well, it's kind of because he maybe forgot a little bit about who gave him the strength that he could jump over a mountain with. Um, and so we, we can move that way in the Christian life. But yeah, we're always gonna be unhappy. We can even drop into being unsure. Um, hopefully we never get to the point of being uninterested. Um, but as long as we go through the Christian life, that's the difficulty. We, we go hot and cold. We go through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, but what pastorally what this is saying is you go back to the things that God has given you as means of grace and encouragement. You don't immediately go to, I'm reprobate. Because that's a dark hole to climb out of if you start thinking that way. And the Lord didn't come to drop you into darkness, but to dispel the darkness and to transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light. Um, There's light there where He is, and we have to go towards the light of the Lord um, if we want to be encouraged. Um, And so, reprobation—so saying, don't don't misuse the doctrine if you're in one of these camps, and go there instead of going to the places for encouragement, hope, repentance, where God has called us to go. Um, so we need, we need to do that. Um, and so I'll just read a little bit about what my dad said about this article in his book on the canons. He said this, this article, Article 16, addresses those who have some feelings of, or desire for God and for living for Him, but do not find in themselves those feelings as fully as they would like they are assured that God will bless those beginnings of faith. That's why allusion is made to Isaiah 42.3. And this teaching is similar to the statement of William Perkins, the desire for grace is an evidence of grace. Um, So the doctrine of reprobation should not terrify the spiritually concerned, but should terrify those who are completely indifferent spiritually. While the doctrine should terrify such people, it does not provide that they are in fact reprobate in the eternal counsel of God. Rather, their terror might lead to awakening and even to true conversion. No one living can know that he is reprobate except by special revelation as was the case with Judas Iscariot. Um, you can't know that you're reprobate apart from a divine, special divine revelation like was made to, to Judas Iscariot. That's what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer. It was known from the beginning that he was reprobate. And that was made known through Christ. Apart from that, you can't know. Um, what you can know is that if you flee for refuge to Jesus, you can find rest for your soul. Um, that's what we have to do. That's what we have to say. And, and understanding this doctrine is particularly important when it comes to um, what about people who can't be unsure or, un, or unhappy or uninterested like children who die in infancy. Um, what 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 happens to them? Um, how does this issue of election and reprobation touch on, on children who die in infancy? Um, because there were some rumblings at the time where, you know, your Calvinists are so Calvinistic that you're basically consigning every infant to hell. Um, because who can know that they're elect apart from the fruits of election, as you've said it? And so since you can't have any fruits of election in an infant, how would you know that an infant that dies in infancy Is saved. Um, How can you say anything about them other than they are children of wrath? Um, Don't you consign all infants who die in infancy to hell? Um, Which is a very serious issue always for people who've lost children in infancy, but is especially important when you're living in a world where a lot of children die in infancy. Right. This is not just some theological speculation. This is very pastoral, in the, in the in the sense that they were dealing with these things all the time. Um, you know, if you read old prayers, it's interesting how often in old prayers, pregnant women are grouped in with the people who are suffering, who are dying, and who are grieving. And, you know, as I, read, as I would read old prayers and try to use them as basis for congregational prayer, I would sometimes, you know, I would sometimes say, well, you know, we, we put pregnancy in kind of the joyful category. We rejoice with people when they're pregnant. Why, why do all these old prayers put them over with, like, the sick and dying? Um, because it was a very touchy business back then, whether... You would, the mother would survive childbirth, whether the child would survive childbirth. And you have lots of people who have had lots of children who didn't survive. Um, Calvin had children that didn't survive. He had a son who died in infancy. Um, and one thing that was very hard for him is that people would use the death of his infant son to say, see, this is proof that God is cursing you. Um, and so talk about you know, grief being put on top of Grief. So this is a very real and pastoral question. What do you say to to the parent of a child who dies in infancy? Are are you saying they're by nature a child of wrath and they they die and they go to perdition? Is Is that what we're saying? And so we have a much better answer in Article 17 than that. Article 17 says, since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, Not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included. Godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children, whom God calls out of this life in infancy. Um, Now that's a pretty that's a pretty bold statement. You should not doubt your child's election and salvation. Right, that's a big claim, isn't it? And how can you make such a big claim? Um, well, they rightly say, you have to make set judgments about God's will from His word. And what does God's word say about our children? They're holy. Um, that's 1 Corinthians 7:14. Your children are holy. Okay? So we, we know that. Remember that when you go home. Your children are holy. Um, it might not always come across that way, but they are. Um, your children are holy because God says they are. Not by virtue of their birth. The Bible also says children are nature of wrath. Uh, but by the, nature of the, virtue, the by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included. Why are your children holy? Because they are in covenant with the Lord. And what does the Lord say about your children? Your Lord the Lord says to you, "I will be God to you and to your children after you." I will be God to you and to your children after you. Who are in the covenant? Believers and their children. right? So someone who says, well, you can only say about the infant that they're by nature a child of wrath. That's not the only thing I can say about an infant. I can also say that they're holy and that God has promised to be their God. Um, And one of the scriptural defenses of that proposition is when David loses a son in infancy, right? Now that's, that's pain on top of pain, right? There's There's a pain that those of us who've not gone through it cannot really understand the loss of a child. But imagine that you're losing that child as a specific judgment for a sin you've committed. That's what David was facing. His son was dying because of the sin he committed in conceiving the son. And we know that because God said that to him. And he was filled with grief on account of that pronouncement as the son was sick and dying. Um, and he was pouring out his heart before God and he was you know, lamenting before God and he, he was repenting in dust and ashes before God and you know, people watched David doing that and when, when word came that his son died, the servant said, I can't go tell him because I'm really afraid what he's gonna do to himself if, if he finds this out. Right? A very personal, tender, moving moment they're like, you know, the king has been so beat up over the loss of this child. What, what is he going to do when he's just a sickness? What is he going to do when we say he's dead? And when they report that, he goes and kind of cleans himself up, goes and takes a shower, kind of puts himself back together. And everybody is sort of perplexed as to why this didn't lead to a whole nother depth of mourning for David. And he gives the response, when the child lived, I thought the Lord might yet be merciful but he will not come back to me. I will go to him. He won't come back to me, but I'll go to him. Now, where is David going? Heaven, right? Not a trick question. David's going to heaven. And so when he says, my child won't come back to me, but I'll go to him, where is his child? In heaven. Now, how does David know that? He's not given some special revelation of it. He believes the covenant promises of his God. That his child was holy, not by virtue of the covenant, I mean, not by virtue of his nature, but by virtue of the covenant that included David and his children. And so the canons rightly say, you have to judge God's will by what his word says. And his word says that believing children are holy. They're part of the covenant and tells us that believing parents in the past in his his church have known that they would see their children again in glory. Um, And parents need to know that And, and say it's not speculation. It's not just willful thinking. It's the promise of God you can say with certainty about your children. Now that brings up totally different implications as life goes on. In the life of a child, we're not talking about that here. what we're talking about here is a child that dies in infancy, and all you know about them is that they were holy by virtue of being part of the covenant, that God had said they were holy and said, "I will be their God, and they will be my people um, and that's the reason you can say with certainty what's become of them, yes, ma'am. right. Just- Yeah, I don't think, I think what what they're trying to say is you can't say anything about that child for certain. So some people have misread this as if we're saying children of believers go to heaven and children of unbelievers go to hell. And that's not what we're saying here. We're saying we have to judge God's will by his word. And what God's word tells us is that he has mercy on whom he'll have mercy and has compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And so I wouldn't say for certainty that anybody's child who's an unbeliever that dies in embassy, automatically goes to hell. I would just say, we have to judge God's will by his word and his word is silent about those other cases. But there are, there are places in the word, in God's word where you, he'll say things like, you know, put all of Jeroboam's descendants to death because, they, because of what he's done in my eyes, but not this one because he's found favor in my sight. You're like, well, what did that one do that found favor that all the rest of them are being killed, well, the Lord will have compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And so I don't think I'd wanna say anything about the infants of unbelievers. I don't know that we can say anything about them with certainty. Um, We're trying to judge God's will by his word. And so for those outside the covenant, you'd have to say, he can show mercy on children. He can show mercy on whom he'll have mercy and compassion on whom he'll have compassion. Um, So I wouldn't wanna say anything about, about them. Um, some people have some reformed people have made the argument that all children who die in infancy go to heaven because they've said you know the, the vision of heaven is a multitude that nobody can number and the church is always small in the world so how can the heavenly people be a multitude no one can number unless you add to that number somehow so maybe children dying in infancy going to heaven would bolster the numbers um, but that seems to me to be kind of a speculative argument and i think we really ought to judge god's will solely by his word so does that answer? Yeah. Okay. Yes, ma'am. So, um, when we were in Egypt and he had them marked the doorposts, and he took the firstborn away from those that weren't didn't have the blood on the doorpost. What's the connection with the, with the ones that died in that situation? Yeah. Well, the covenant people were supposed to do that. And that was to be their protection of their little ones. The blood of the covenant protected them. Um, and so, yeah, if you didn't do that, then you were just obeying the specific word of the Lord. But that didn't mean that if that necessarily that you if you didn't do it as an Israelite, that your child died reprobate. Um, they might have died for disobedience. But you know, sort of the same way David's son died. For his parents' disobedience, but he didn't go to hell on account of it. Um, but but the Egyptians that did not their, their child died, would, it, would, would that be considered reprobation? No, I wouldn't want to make any any statement about election or reprobation with those children, because people do die having disobeyed the Lord, which don't don't necessarily mean they they die out of a state of righteousness with the Lord, but that they do suffer the consequences of their sin. Um, you know king Uzziah is remembered in scripture as someone who did what was a king who did what was right in the eyes of the lord but he's also the king who tried to go into the temple and offer sacrifices himself and when the priests, you know tried to keep him out of there and failed he went in and, and came out leprous and he died a leper um well, we're still told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's how we're to regard him as a king, but he still came to a bad end by his disobedience. So we have to differentiate between those who suffer and even who die on account of their sins, but who still are saved, right? We can suffer a lot for our, temporally for our sins as consequences of our sin and still be saved. So we want to distinguish between election and reprobation and salvation and temporal punishments in this life. Does that make sense? Okay. Any other questions? See, that child is holy right now, <laughs> even whether you want to believe it or not, um, <laughs> by virtue of the covenant. I <laughs> um, always be quick to say, but see, we have to we have to believe those promises, and that's why. Um, that's why we sometimes with, with Baptists, they, they'll say, well, you know, on what basis do you baptize a child? They don't have, they haven't made any profession of faith or anything like that. And you say, you're right. The, the baby can't say anything about itself, but I'm baptizing them on the basis of what God says about them. Um, and, you know, Herman Bobbing said, you're actually baptizing babies on a better word. I baptize a believer on the basis of the, word, the believer's word that they believe and uh, I make a judgment of charity on the basis of their profession of faith. With a baby, I'm not taking the baby's profession of faith. I'm, ta- I'm taking the Lord's profession of identity. They're holy. Um, now, how much you can rest in that as they grow up and become more their own person, just that bare promise if they don't receive it, then you know that's a different conversation to have. But here we're talking about children that die in infancy um, and that that wonderful pastoral Reminder that children are born into a covenant relationship with their God. That God's covenant is with believers and their children. Um, and that's a great reason to give thanks. Um, so let's give thanks to God for his mercy to us. David, yes. Oh, thank you. Um, there are cards out there to sign for our folks who are shut in. Um, was there, there was an announcement about that in the bulletin, too. Um, and so you can take advantage of that to to spread a little Christmas cheer to those who are shut in and not able to be with us so uh, that 's out in the in the lobby. Is that enough of an announcement to cover the major highlights okay all right let 's uh let 's go th- thank our God together Father we do thank you for your word. we thank you for the encouragement that it gives us We thank you for the picture it gives us of a savior who is one who does not come to break bruised reeds or to smother smoldering wicks, but comes to um, give hope to those who are struggling. And so, Lord, we pray that we would always continue to return to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, that we might find rest in the midst of our troubles. We all carry many burdens, Lord, and we are reminded again by your scripture that we should not fear the judgment on that account, but that we should flee to Christ and find refuge and help in our time of need. And so Lord, would you continue to help us to come to you? Would you create in us more and more a hungering and thirsting for righteousness that we might have a stronger faith and a more fruitful life, not to earn anything from your hand, but to show forth our gratitude to you and to glorify your name. So help us, Lord, not to ever despair of your grace and your goodness to your people, but always to return to it. For those who've suffered the loss of children and infancy, Lord, we pray that you would comfort them in their loss, that you would encourage them with the promise of your word, uh, that you would fill them with the hope of that reunion that's coming for all the people of God together, and that we might find comfort in that as well. We thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. We pray that you would forgive us our sins and bless us in his name, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Thank you.